Genesis chapter 9, picking up in verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the last 12 months have been momentous uh, for the defense of life in, in our country on January 22, 1972, the United States Supreme Court invented a new right uh, to, um, to provide for the legalization of abortion. And when they did, they arrogated to themselves um, uh, something that was not even in the Constitution. In fact, they, they took away the legislative power from the state legislators and gave it unto themselves. It was assumed at the time by the justices, that by making that decision, they would settle the issue, that it would cease to be controversy in our land. And by sort of um, making a declaration of what was legal and not legal, then that would end the debate. Instead of settling the issue, by God's grace, 1972 decision of Roe v. Wade awakened the church and those who recognized the illegitimacy, the injustice, and the depravity of the ruling. In June of this past year, the United States Supreme Court overturned its decision of Roe with the, the, their decision on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And friends, when that happened, we rightly rejoiced. Each year on the anniversary of Roe, the road decision, I, along with many, many other churches and, and pastors, preach a message on the sanctity of life. Each year when I preach these messages, I have prayed earnestly. I have prayed for God's deliverance from this wicked scourge on our land. But I have a confession to you, and that is that even as I preached each year and prayed um, for God to do something, I, I prayed with frankly, a lack of faith that I would ever see God move in this, on this issue in my lifetime. And I, was, I became aware of that lack of faith when the Roe decision was overturned, and I was just astonished. I, we should not be astonished when God does amazing things. But to be honest, I, 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 was, I lacked faith that God was going to do that in my lifetime. Oh, friends, we should praise the Lord for his mercy on this land to bring about the end of such a wicked ruling and, and, and rejoice that millions of lives have been saved because of that decision. What a mighty thing God has done. And I think this should give us great encouragement that he is working to deliver the oppressed and those threatened by wickedness. God is still at work today. Almost as soon as the ruling was handed down, the reality of how the landscape of the, of the fight um, had changed began to set in. And so um, what I, what the sense I have is for a lot of us who have had our hearts bent toward this issue for a long time, there was a moment of rejoicing. We were thankful for God delivering our land from that decision. And then almost instantaneously, an awareness of the 
of the, the expansion of the, um, the, the landscape of where we must contend for life. The Supreme Court, had, had when they had decided Roe, they invented a right to abortion, and they had taken from the, for, from the legislators of each state the right to legislate on the issue. And when they overturned themselves this past June, the, the issue uh, was, was no longer held with the Supreme Court. It then went where it should have always been, back to the states. But that means now, instead of focusing on the court in Washington, D.C., right, right across the street from the Capitol, now the, the attention is moved to every state legislator in all 50 states of the Union. Now, there are both positives and negatives to this reality. On the positive side, the debate is back with the state legislator, and that is a good thing. I remember hearing a speech by um, the um, Supreme Court Justice Scalia, and he made the case, he said, you never, ever really want the Supreme Court to, de- to decide on such an issue like this, because once, he, once the Supreme Court does, it removes the opportunity for debate in, uh, and arguments to be made. He said, it, and, and he was speaking on abortion, and he said, it rightly is in the state legislator. If you don't like the, the, the law that your state legislator has passed, then contend for a different law to be written, and, and by, the, by electing representatives. Representatives and in the legislative process, you can. It's a hard process, but you can change the law of your state. But when the Supreme Court rules, that typically ends the debate. So, on the positive side, it is moved back to our state legislators. Praise God for that. But that also means that on, on, on the negative side, that the battle is expanded uh, to 50 locations and to 50 legislators. And in, in some ways, friends, where abortion was celebrated and pushed, it is still celebrated and pushed in, in places where it was not uh, seen as, uh, as a good thing. It, is, it, it remains so as well. We must be very clear that the issue of abortion is not a right or left issue. I want you to hear me carefully on this. In fact, it is not truly a political issue, and you... I hope when you hear me say that, you think, but pastor, that's, that's like the leading issue of so much of the political debate of our day. The issue, friends, of honoring and protecting life is a pre-political issue. Now, what I mean by pre-political is it is something that existed before government. In other words, it, was, it, it existed before the government was established. And so the pre-political issues... Are, are, are things that our government recognizes, honors, and protects, but, but have not given to us as um, some gift of the government. Maybe one of the most famous documents of our own national founding is our Declaration of Independence, and the, the articulation of pre-political um, realities is right there in the, in the beginning of that document. These words will sound familiar to you. When our forefathers wrote these words, he says, and we hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, they exist already that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with, the, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, government doesn't give these to you as a right. They're not, they're not bestowed upon you by a decision that happens in our capital. Those things are, are part of the cre- good created order of God. They are pre-political. The sanctity of life, your right to live, was not bestowed upon you by some government. That your right to live the sanctity of your life is bestowed upon you by the creator who made you. 
That's why I say this is not a political issue. It's not a right or left or Republican, independent or, or, or Democrat issue. This is, a, this is an issue that government does not bestow. It certainly just should recognize, honor, and protect. Sanctity of life is pre-political. God gives life and no man nor government has the right to take life away. Now, our passage that we read from Genesis 9 may seem to you a strange passage to preach on on such a Sunday. It is part of the Noadic covenant and primarily God's instruction that the the penalty for taking another person's life is death. In fact, we're not going to talk about this deeply today, but but, but the biblical foundation, the theological foundation for 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 the death penalty is this passage. This is where it begins. And you may ask, what does this have to do with abortion. The connection is that God declares the sanctity of life and his sovereignty over all life in this passage. And I believe understanding these truths allow us to rightly understand our response to abortion and every other issue that's facing us today concerning the sanctity of life. Now, one other thing I want to say before we begin to walk through this passage is this. My intention this morning is to be faithful to God's word and to proclaim it as faithfully and clearly as I can. The the Bible does not ignore sin. God does not ignore sin. And if anyone stands up to tell you that your sin doesn't matter, they are a liar and should be immediately rejected. Friends, it helps you not. It benefits you nothing to ignore your sin sin. So to that end, I'm going to speak very honestly this morning about sin. In fact, I'm going to speak very openly about some very unpleasant things. Parents, it's okay. I'm going to speak and I'm going to use some phrases that I hope you understand, but maybe will not be understood by some some others that may be younger in our congregation. But I'm going to speak as, as openly and honestly about sin as I can. We should, God does not ignore sin and neither should we. There is no freedom in turning a blind eye to sin. However, listen to me carefully. I do not, I do want you to understand um, that I understand that in a room this size with this many people, it is, it is likely, I mean, it's an assumption I'm preaching under today, that some of you have had abortions. Some of you have encouraged others to have abortions. Some of you, your family has, um, has been impacted by the issue of abortion. Some of you have supported legalized abortion in the political arena. And so I want you to hear me on this. My intention this morning is not to condemn. Rather, I want to declare the holiness of God, the forgiveness that is found in Jesus, and the hope of being made new in Christ. The good news of the gospel that we preach every single Sunday is it does not matter what preceded your, you coming into this room. <laughs> it only matters have you given your life to Jesus. There is no sin that the blood of that old rugged cross cannot overcome. So friends, hear me very carefully. Even as we preach boldly about the reality, the wickedness, the depravity of sin, we also make clear the glorious hope that we find in Jesus and his forgiveness. Now, the way I want to divide the passage this morning is I want to, make, I want to declare two truths that I see in the passage and then, and then lastly come back and give some just practical responses to these truths. So here are the two truths. Number one, 
our identity, to understand our biblical, the humanity's biblical identity. So to understand the sanctity of life, you, you have to understand how the Bible sees that what God declares about man's role in creation. So how do we sit in creation versus trees and plants and animals and birds and the, the fish of the sea? So understand our biblical identity. And then secondly, have a righteous fear of the holiness of God. And then from those two things, I want to give some practical responses, particularly to the issue of the sanctity of life that I think would be helpful for us to have. But let's begin with a biblical identity. Now, just a few things under this. Number one, you and I, men and women, are unique amongst all of creation. Men and women are unique amongst all of creation. As our world has grown more secular and less familiar with, biblic, with a biblical worldview, there have, de- have developed what I would call some great confusions concerning the place and the role of humanity in, in creation. One of the deadliest of these confusions concerns the place of man in creation. So where do we fit? Where do we rank in all of creation? And, and how do we fit among it? Now, there are two symptoms of this confusion that I see most often. They are, number one, an elevation of creation, and particularly animals, to be seen as of equal value and worth as man. So lifting up animals and the created things of this world to be equal with man. And then the second thing, a a view of man as a contagion or as something that is destructive to the earth. Now, to the first Animals should be cared for and appreciated as part of the goodness of creation. We're dog lovers at my house. And I, we, we love our, our dog. We have cried when, when, when dogs died in our household. Some of y'all have too. Some of y'all won't admit it, but I know you have. So I'm not saying you can't love a pet. I can't say you, you in fact, I, I want to make the case. We've been called to have dominion over the earth and to care for it. And you ought to be taking care of the creation that God has given us. Animals should be cared for and appreciated as part of the goodness of creation. But when the view of animals is elevated to be equal with man, the result is the devaluing of humanity. Now listen, because God created man unique amongst creation, if you elevate something that should not be on the level of man to the level of man, you don't actually elevate the the thing that is lower. You devalue man to the level of what um, you're elevating. When the understanding of the uniqueness of man who alone is made in the image of God is lost, the result is the degradation of the sanctity of human life and an attempt to elevate creation to be equal and and sometimes even greater than the dignity and worth of man. One of the grossest things I see this is you will see in some, they are as passionate about caring for needy animals as they are about the destruction of human life. Now that's a wicked, broken contrast. I'm not advocating harming animals, but I'm just saying, dear friends, you are more valuable and and of greater worth in creation than the animals, the birds, and the fish in the sea. You're unique in creation in that you're made in the image of God. Now the second was seeing man as a contagion or destructive to the earth. Uh, and and that, that has produced some murderous de- uh, desires to reduce population and, and see, see some, as, as the, the, the expansion of the population as a problem to be corrected rather than a blessing to be 
celebrated. Friends, the very first commandment was to be fruitful and what? To multiply, to fill the earth. In the late 1960s, a Stanford University professor um, uh, published a book called The The Population Bomb. And it it made the case, an alarmist case, that a population was out of control and that the world was about to be plunged into starvation and all kinds of disaster. Now, we're, we're... well, 50 years past, um, the, the, more than 50 years past the, the, the publication of that book, and, and all the predictions of doom have not come to fruition. In fact, all of them have been debunked. In fact, the, where, he, where he said that the, the population would become a disastrous point, not only have we reached that population point, but we have exceeded it by exponential numbers. And you would think somebody who's been so well um, demonstrated to, to, to not be right would be laughed off the stage and a forgotten part of history. But just this past month, he, the, the author of that book was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. Now, the, the thing has changed. Now it's an environmental crisis, but the same, prop, the, the same idea is there, that the problem with the earth is man. Man is a contagion that is breaking the earth, harming the earth, and the answer to that is that we need to do something about man. We need to fix the earth by, de- by, by reducing the population of man. Now, friends, listen to me carefully. That is, a, that is an idea, that is a philosophy, that is a, a line of thinking that is wicked. It says that man has no value, and it, 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 it rejects the very first commandment of God to us. If man is the problem, then man must be removed from the earth. And this is in direct conflict with the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, 28. And it's reaffirmed, by the way, in this passage. In fact, if you look in verse 7, uh, even after the passage that we read, and, and, and God says again to Noah, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God created the earth for man. And man's role in the earth was to increase and to populate it. In verse 6, God declares, in our passage, God declares why the penalty for killing another person is so high. Now listen to me carefully. This is the highest penalty in all of Scripture for any sin. And God declares why the penalty for killing another person is so high. That is because, and this is the crux of the passage, man is made as an image bearer of God. Now, what God is saying is man is created in my image. This is a reaffirmation of Genesis chapter 1 where God says, um, then, 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 uh, um, where God said uh, man is created in my image. In fact, um, you may remember that when, after God created Adam and Eve, uh, he did something a bit odd. He, he called Adam uh, and, he, and he had Adam give the name or name all of the creatures of the earth. Now, you, if you're reading that passage, you might think, why would the Creator not name all the creatures of the earth? But God gave that responsibility to Adam, and the reason why he gave that responsibility to Adam is after Adam had named everything on the earth, he comes to a pretty important realization, and he says, nothing goes with me. Out of all the good, glorious, created things, nothing goes with me. And that's when God created Eve. And when Adam beheld Eve, that's when he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, Adam goes, she goes with me. 
He understood that he had, he, his relationship to creation was that all, he and all of creation were created by God, but nothing in creation matched him. Man is unique in all of creation in that man alone is made in the image of God. Not the birds, not the dogs and the cats, not the lions and the tigers and bears, oh my. Only Adam and Eve are made in the glorious image of God. And that makes them unique in all of creation. Only man is an image bearer. The sanctity of life does not begin with the worth and value of man. Listen to me carefully here. The sanctity of life begins with the glory of God who created man in his image. Did you see that? Sanctity of life really doesn't start with your value, my value. The sanctity of life begins with the glory of God and that you and I have been made in his image. Every person that walks this earth, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they do, or any other distinction is made, they are all made in the image of God and therefore their life is sacred before God. Friends, understand your, bibl your biblical identity is that you are unique in creation and that you were created. Your life is under the sovereignty of God. From the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the goodness of creation has been corrupted. So Genesis 1, Genesis 2, glorious things. Creation perfect. God declares over it, it is good. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They left the garden. And from that point until this point in history, everything about the goodness of creation has been corrupted. Almost immediately after leaving the garden, we, the Scripture records for us the first sin. You know what the first sin was? It was murder. Where Cain killed his own brother, Abel. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, it's a passage that makes modern readers a bit uncomfortable because it demands the punishment of death for those who murder. Now, there are some who think that as humanity progresses that we'll move past the unpleasantries of the death penalty. But Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6 may offend your modern sensibilities, but you must reckon with the fact that God is the one who is sovereign over all life. That's the point. God gives life, and only God is sovereign to take life. This is the point of the passage, that God is the giver of life, and only God can take life. No person has the right to take life of another in their own will. Taking the life of another can only rightly be done as an act of judgment for a crime of murder. The key verse to understand this passage is in verse 5 when God says, I um, um, will require a reckoning. This is not freedom for man to get revenge. This is a recognition that God is sovereign over all life. If you destroy one of his image bearers, your, your reckoning is not with other men. Your reckoning is with God himself. You were born by the sovereign will of God. You will breathe uh, today, you breathe today by the sovereign will of God. Your days are numbered by the sovereign will of God. And friends, to impose your will over the sovereignty of God is not a political decision. It is ultimately a decision to oppose the living God. Understand biblical identity. Man and women, men and women are created uniquely amongst creation. And we live and breathe under the sovereignty of God. 
Now, second thing, and that is to have righteous fear. Righteous fear. Friends, life is holy or sacred before God. One of the wicked things that we do is to value some lives greater than others. But God puts no limits on who is an image bearer. All life is holy before God. Not because of the value that you and I ascribe to a particular person, but because every life is an image bearer of God. So let's be very honest here. All life is holy. The life of the drug addict is holy. The life of the homeless person is holy. The life of the poor, the mentally ill, the old, the sick, the physically disabled, the baby born into poverty, the baby conceived in sinful circumstances. Every life is holy before God. Somebody say amen to that. In modern history, the most depraved ideology was that of Nazi Germany that had a phrase, I cannot pronounce it in German, but it translates as this way, life unworthy of life. Now it metastasized and had its greatest sort of impact in what we're most familiar with, and that's the death camps that, that, that sought to the genocide of the Jews. But it's important to remember that that actually began not as an act against Jews, but as an act against their own German people to attempt to, to, uh, to, uh, to purify the, the lineage of Germans. And so they, they, they would encourage the, the mentally ill and those who had genetic disorders and those things to, to euthanize them at Anyone who was, whose life was determined as a life unworthy of life. If you do any research on that, you'll see some posters. And some of the wickedness of that era is that the posters talk about that, there's a, that these people uh, pose a financial and economic burden upon the country. And so it's, the, the, it's your duty, it's your right, it's your economic advantage to dispose of those whose life is unworthy of life. Friends, listen to me very carefully. That thought pattern is from the pit of hell. It is a lie of Satan. I don't care who you are, what you are, what is wrong with you, what you can do and you cannot do. If God has given you life, you bear the image of God and your life is holy before the living God. Those who are obedient to God must value all life and must reject anything that devalues any life. To devalue any life is to devalue all life. Listen to me carefully on this. All the the common word today is um, quality of life. So on the back end of life, those who want to uh, talk about Um, physician-assisted suicide, and the reasoning for that is, well, the quality of life is diminished. Friends, I'm telling you, if you diminish any life, you you diminish all life. Your life is sacred and holy before the Lord from conception till natural death. Every life is holy before the Lord and must be sacred among us. And I would encourage you, friends, 
As you understand that life is holy before the Lord, fear God more than you fear man. I, I, I gave this, this point, righteous fear. The testimony of who you believe has true authority and holds the most consequence of your life is testified by who you obey. And who you obey likely comes down to who you truly fear. Now, our modern context sees fear as a negative, but that's not the way Scripture sees fear. In fact, Scripture speaks of fear as a positive. Throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to throughout the New, fearing God is a description of those who are God's people, who honor God, who recognize Him for who He is. Friends, if your God is not a God who elicits fear, and I don't mean that in the sense of a scary movie way. I just mean a God who you cannot control. If you can control God and your God is able to be held in your hand, that's not a God, that's an idol. The living God is not, does not take orders from man. Man takes orders from the living God. And the Bible says those who follow after the Lord and obey the Lord fear the Lord. Fearing God is not the fear of nightmares, but the righteous and appropriate respect of who God is. I mean, just to, to understand this, if you don't have an appropriate fear and understanding of the power and potential destructive force of a firearm, you don't need to be anywhere near a firearm. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who didn't treat a, a gun with respect. You, you run away from them pretty quick. You know, one of the things my dad used to just preach to me as a 16-year-old kid learned to drive, son, you don't understand the power of an automobile. And he was absolutely right. As a father with children that are learning to drive, you know what I say? You don't understand the power of an automobile. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to instill in them, this is, this is 2,000 pounds running down the road at 70 miles an hour. There is a potential of great destruction with this. You need to have a healthy fear of what it is if you're going to drive a car. And put your life and others in danger. Anything of great power must be, have, uh, be approached with appropriate fear and respect. So listen to me carefully here. I mean, this is the sober moment. If I, could, if I could just draw your attention, here's the sober moment for us. The consequence of opposing the wicked desires of the world are growing. The demands of the world that all submit to and participate in celebrated sin are growing. But dear brothers and dear sisters, fear God more than you fear man and stand for the sanctity of life. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you more tomorrow than it does today. I hear sometimes folks say, well, you need to be on the right side of history. Friends, I'm just going to tell you something. Don't worry about history. Worry about the author of all creation and be on the right side of God. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God's not worried about history. He's the same in history as he is in the future. Praise God for that. Fear God more than you fear man. Have a holy fear, a righteous fear. Have no part in the taking of life. Bear the consequences of man's derision and live to please the Lord in all things. And let that be your respect for and understanding of the sanctity of life. Now, that's what God is communicating to Noah. 
with the heaviness, the, the weight of the consequence for if you take the life of another, the consequence of that is the taking of your life. What God is communicating there is that life is sacred, and to take a life is to have a consequence not just with man, but ultimately with God. Now, I think understanding the, the uniqueness of our biblical identity, our uniqueness in creation, the sanctity of life, and having a righteous fear before the Lord, that produces in us some responses. And I want to I want to encourage you three ways, three responses I think we ought to have as we think about the sanctity of life and how we participate in our culture around us. Number one, recognize, and this sounds redundant, but it needs to be said again, recognize all lives as holy. In the political debate, there's often a suggestion that some lives are not worthy of life. We don't use the German phrase, life unworthy of life but we're saying it all the same. And it usually comes in the way of exceptions. Listen to it. Even Republican, conservative, pro-life legislation often includes exceptions. Friends, a baby that is conceived in a broken and sinful situation is still a baby that is holy before the Lord. A pregnancy that would dramatically disrupt the plans and life of a young mother is still a baby holy before the Lord. A baby that is to be born into a homeless mother is still a baby that is holy before the Lord. There are certainly sinful and broken situations that produce pregnancies. But listen to me. The details of the conception have no bearing on the sanctity of life that it produces. Do you hear me? The details of the conception have no bearing on the sanctity of life that it produces. So we must recognize the sanctity of every life. So the baby of the teenage mother. Now, friends, listen, if, if your kids come to me, I'm going to say to them, dear, dear, dear young people, your sex is right and holy in the context of marriage, and outside of marriage it is not rightly nor godly nor, nor righteously enjoyed. The 16-year-olds have babies, do they not? And we can talk about the sinfulness of that situation, but we must declare the baby that is produced does not bear the sin of their parents. The baby that is produced is holy before the Lord. The baby of a mother who is a victim of a horrific crime. That's pretty hard to just swallow and talk about. Friends, the brokenness, the depravity of this world knows no end. And so pregnancies are produced by some horrific situations. But the baby that is produced is holy before the Lord. The baby of a mother who is a prostitute may be shamefully conceived, but the baby is holy before the Lord. The baby of a woman who is a homeless person or the baby of an illegal alien. Now you can talk about the politics of immigration, but the baby is holy before the Lord. There are no exceptions to the sanctity of life. Can we just get that clear? There are no exceptions to the sanctity of life. All lives are holy before the Lord. So reckon with that reality. That must be the response we start with. Every life is holy before God. Number two, work to protect those holy lives. So the focus of the battle is moved from the Supreme Court to the state legislators. It's not enough to have our theology right. We must also put to action 
uh, our theology. So I would just encourage you, friends, to use whatever influence you have to protect life. Vote for those who will work to protect life in the legislature. When you have family and friends who are facing an unplanned pregnancy, encourage them to honor life and keep the baby. Look for opportunities and avenues to support and encourage those who have chosen life. Crisis pregnancy centers and those sort of things. Work to protect life and then lastly work to honor life. When a biblical understanding of life is lost, then life is devalued to a commodity and those who are judged to be of no worth are treated as disposable and contemptible. Friends, there are no disposable lives and there are no contemptible lives. When you're dealing with a person, you are dealing with someone who is an image bearer of the living God. To honor life does not mean that you ignore sin. It does mean that you treat every person with the dignity of being an image bearer of God. Protect life. Honor life. The moral confusion of our day is quite startling and sometimes brutally jarring. Not long after the, the road decision fell this past June, the New York Times ran an article on Indiana, the state of Indiana's um, uh, safe haven baby box program. Now, all 50 states have a similar program. If you go to our local hospital and you walk in the front door, you'll see a sign there that says that it's a safe place to, to drop a baby. And in Indiana, there are these boxes, like really large night deposit boxes is what they look like usually on fire stations and, and uh, courthouses and those sort of things. And they're usually positioned where the mothers don't have to interact with anybody so they can anonym, anonymously give up their babies. And they're boxes. And so you open the box, you place a baby inside, you close the box. When that box is closed, alarms go off to alert the, uh, um, the, the, the people who are manning the, the building that a baby's been placed in, and then they go and they care for that baby. Now, friends... The situation that leads a mother to surrender her baby is, is difficult, but we can all agree, I think, that choosing life is a glorious and beautiful thing. And we can honor a mom who gave up her baby to, to be cared for by someone else when she wasn't able to, be, to care for that baby. And you might think that um, safe haven laws are, are universally accepted, good, and non-political thing. Who would be against a safe haven law, right? I mean, that, of all the things that we can disagree with in our country, I would think that would be something that we could agree on. But if you think that, you're wrong. Because not long after New York Times uh, ran that article, they published about a week later a letter to the editor in response to the, the article they wrote on Indiana's um, safe haven law. And I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs out of that response. The author said this, Can pro-life proponents be so intent on preventing a loss of life, and they put life in scare quotes, by abortion that they are blind to the damage caused to a woman who has been forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy to have her then drop her baby into a receptacle similar to a trash chute. During pregnancy, even an unwanted one, most women develop an attachment to and feelings for the fetus growing inside her. 
To part with that baby is unbearable, is, is unbearably painful to most women. This Dropbox concept is cruel, traumatizing, and soul-destroying, and would merely exasperate the feelings of guilt, sorrow, and loss these women experience. I understand that it is a safer alternative to just dumping the newborn, but very few women do that. And to see it as a solution is, that is preferable to abortion is heartless and impractical. The last sentence is one that haunts me. I'm going to read that again. To see it, the drop box where a living baby is delivered to people who will care for it and raise it. To see these drop boxes as a solution that is preferable to abortion, the ending of its life is heartless and impractical. Now, friends, this is the perspective of one who sees life as disposable. Dear friends, a living baby is indeed preferable to abortion. Protecting and honoring the life of a baby is preferable always to abortion. This is the world in which we live. But the good word for you today is that in the darkness, even the smallest of light shines all the brighter. Be the light of truth in the darkness of this world. Stand for life in our community, in our nation, in our world. Fear God and honor all who bear his image to the glory and honor of the living God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.